Yo-ho-ho and ahoy there, sailors! It be me, Captain Chessbeard, here with the Tuesday Night Podcast. Yar! It be our 42nd episode. <laughs> and we have a special guest host, Quentin Smith from Shut Up and Sit Down. That shark bait, SBJ, couldn't be with us. For he's busy, yeah, trying to catch them all. So if ye have a problem with the edits in this episode, then ye have a problem with me, Captain Chessbeard. Cause Sharkbait SBJ is busy, too busy to edit this episode. And sure enough, on this wary crew, we encountered a mighty squall of problems. In fact, Alan Garding was unable to record his own audio, so what you be hearing is a post-edit of Alan putting in what he remembers saying. Call him forgetful, call him stupid, but he tried his best. Or not, I don't know. I don't care! Enjoy! Strap in and listen to Quentin Smith talk about things like racism, pirates, addiction, and board games. So let's set sail, weigh anchor, and hoist the mizzens on this 42nd episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. Hello everybody and welcome to the Tuesday Night Games podcast episode 42. I'm your guest host Quentin Smith and joining me today are Alan Girding. What what in the butt? And Sean McCoy. Hey it's me. I'm from Dallas uh, where we just recently had sort of a bit of tragedy here actually. Probably by the time SBJ edits this and gets it out there'll have been several more uh, mass shootings oh. in America by then, but Jesus, really harsh, man. Uh, especially considering I'm editing this episode with Captain Chessbeard. Oh, that's right, you are the one editing it. So anyway, quick little detour. So if you didn't know, which I'm sure you did, if you're living in America, or did this make news in uh, um, the UK, Quinns? It absolutely did still make news in the UK. Uh, we uh, have a degree of fascination. Uh, well, I mean, I read the Guardian because uh, I'm a big soft liberal uh, wet blanket um but yeah the guardian in particular uh, do a lot of coverage of american mass shootings um i think partially because when uh, people like me grew up we get a lot of american culture and we basically thought america was like friends and so the recent uh, increased yeah, me coverage too. Of- <laughs> right okay um so yeah we uh, the, the the mass shooting stuff is um sort of like a endless car crash that the rest of the world is, is driving by so to speak no, that makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's not my country and not necessarily my place to say, but um, especially some of the footage of uh, American police cameras show that, you know, disarmament is not always the first sort of stop for certain police officers around America, as I understand it. Uh, you got to give yourself more credit because you are our go-to European aficionado of news. <laughs> <laughs> Foreign correspondent. Yeah, okay. You know, moving right along, this was my city, and uh, I was big into hip-hop, as I am, watching all the protests and sort of stuff like that. I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have, like, a shirt or something that said, hug the police, as opposed to fuck the police? Because I have sort of weird stances about very aggressive (laughs) non-violence. 
things that get to me are like when you see like a group of Christians like surrounding a group of Muslims, protecting them while they're praying. Like when people who shouldn't have any reason to interact stand together and protect each other. Yeah. Like when you see like a cop just bawling and all these protesters hugging him and the cops like, it's just too hard. This is too much. And the protesters like, we know we're all people. That always really gets to me. All right, well, I'll go get the domain name, hugthepolice.com. I'll get the Twitter. I'll design a shirt. I'll start selling the shirt. I'll start donating, like, proceeds to um, charities for Black Lives Matter and, like, uh, the Dallas Police Memorial Fund, that sort of thing. And the only reason I'm sort of talking about this on the show is because it accidentally solved a problem we've been having at Tuesday Night Games for a while, which is uh, t-shirt sales. And that sort of sounds like a weird, stupid way to bring that up. But, um, Alan, as you know, you've been wanting to sell t-shirts for a long time, right? Uh, yeah. I've wanted to sell t-shirts for a long time. Yeah, yeah, we've actually had a whole bunch of people request different t-shirts from the Tuesday Night Games lineup. Yeah, so I mean, to wrap things up, obviously what happened in Dallas is a tragedy. It's been really cool to see the city come together. We have a really great police force. You know, it's a very transparent one. And uh, I feel like in the aftermath, the city has responded with less militarization, less hate, and more open talks and more like, okay, well, obviously something is breaking down in our city and how can we fix that? Which is really cool to see. That is great, yeah. Transitioning into this t-shirt topic, though, what I learned was that there's a website where we can get shirts printed on demand, Alan, um, that can connect directly up to our website. So like we could throw up designs for like bomber t-shirts and Tuesday night t-shirts and people will be able to order them directly from our website without us having to do any work. If that makes sense, we won't have to like pre-order t-shirts or anything like that. So a lot of you have been sort of begging us for, I know the bomber shirts super popular. Yeah. The president shirts popular, but most people seem to want the world championship Russian roulette t-shirt because it's a self-contained joke. So start tweeting at play TKG sort of ideas you have for shirts or shirts you want to see. And uh, I think we're going to start putting some up here in the next couple weeks, actually. Sort of weird transition from tragedy into commercialization. Um, but <laughs> Alan's been really curious about this shirt thing for a while. And I sort of stumbled into it ass backwards this weekend <laughs> while putting together this hug the police thing. And so I thought, all right, well, I guess I'll share that. That's something that's going on. Well, Here's the real question, though, Sean, is how quality is the material of these T-shirts because I don't want to be wearing no 100% cotton. I want to be wearing something that feels like it's an extension of my own flesh. So quality material? We can get American Apparel uh, shirts. So that that does mean the tri-blend option is available. So I mean, Alan's really into tri-blend t-shirts in a way that's <laughs> almost stupid. Oh. Wait, can I be walked through the this slice of the American oh. dream that is tri-blend? Oh. Please do. Yeah, Alan, why don't you explain tri-blend t-shirts to Quinn's? Oh, absolutely. You just opened a can of worms. Actually, I have uh, some shirt variations in my closet. I'll, I'll go get them. Hold on. I'll just, I'll be right back. This is the kind of riveting podcast material that I come to know and love from Tuesday Night Games. <laughs> you know what, though? We're in exactly the same position here at Shut Up and Sit Down, trying to uh, work out how to do shirts. And we had uh, not some controversy, but some almost controversy recently. Oh, I um, saw that. People were like, you wanted to run a contest, right? Yeah, well, we are actually still running it. So the situation we're in is that we um, recently asked our... I'll, I'll give you the, the way this makes us seem the worst initially. Yeah, because I saw some of this from afar on Twitter, and I yeah. had strong opinions, and I'm glad that I'm going to get to yell those at you. Oh, man. No, yell them, because I believe that you're a graphic designer as well, right? So I can Correct. guess which way this is going to go. So um, 
we have five years of uh, of of running this site. We have five years of jokes. And none of us are people who are necessarily into like fandom and people who you know would want to wear a, a shirt with a slogan or a picture of a of a brand we love. Oh, thanks. We thought that for fun we would open up a competition to our audience who could provide some designs or ideas for designs. And then in return, we send them like a board game and we send them some shirts for free. Like this is low stakes prizes. Um, we can't offer them cash because then it becomes a sweepstakes. So the controversy is like... And there's some ta- sort of laws around sweepstakes, I'm assuming? Yeah, basically you have to get lawyers involved and you have to sign contracts and it all becomes... Essentially, the moment that you want to do that, it becomes... You got to talk about ownership of art and all this sort of stuff. And it's- Yeah, um, basically it becomes... Like at that point, we, know, we never run the competition because right. we yeah. just pay graphic designers to do it. And then the quality of shots and shut up and sit down is is removed but we don't want to god i haven't talked about this for ages this this seemed like a a more fun segue when i started talking um (laughs) but uh yeah so on the other hand to make this fair and we we have said that if any graphic designer does want to sell a shirt we don't want to take a job away from anybody because they can still pitch for us and we will still pay people to do that and also um we found that some of the designs that people are sending in aren't quite up to scratch. Like, we love the idea, and they're going to get loads of votes in the competition, but they're still not there. So then we're going to pay uh, graphic designers, and we're actually creating more work for graphic designers to uh, to sort of finish the designs, and we'll work up some kind of compromise between sending the graphic designer the pay, but also sending a prize to the person who gave the idea for the thing. We're not trying to take jobs away from graphic designers. We believe that good work should be paid for. At the same time, we thought this contest would be super fun, and we do want our audience to have the shirts or the ideas for shirts that, like, excite them the most so we're trying to have a compromise uh sean do you still think i'm an asshole no i'm totally on you i'm i don't want to say your guys's side because i think that i don't want to force you to take a position that you don't have but my position is there's this really big movement that i can sort of see where you have freelance artists freelance graphic designers etc 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 and they've been abused for a long time in this sort of system of do it for your portfolio you know you'll get paid later this is really good exposure for you of course, as we now know, you, you can die of exposure. That is Yes, uh, that's news. Yes. <laughs> and so it's sort of one of these weird things where I think there's an undue backlash when you have like a contest like this. Like this is a fun contest for fans to sort of do their thing um, and sort of support the show like in a creative way. It's not a job posting for <laughs> no. like, professionals. Like, we would not, not expect professionals to come along and and you know right. post phenomenal work uh, if we wanted that and we will want that then we'll pay for it right and speaking of like as a semi-professional or somebody who, like pays my rent by doing this with a show as big as yours i can make the judgment call about like do i want that exposure for free or not like i have i'm the, i've have all the agency i don't have to submit to your show if i don't want to all these sort of weird things it's not like you came to me and said, Sean, will you design a logo for me? And I said, sure, you know, this is my rate. And you said, actually, we can't afford to pay you right now. Could you do it for free? Which mm. I do logos for free all the time. I think it's a completely different situation. I don't think the backlash is warranted by any means. So anyway, I was just like, I saw that and I was like, man, you would do a lot better just continuing doing your freelancing work. I don't know. I don't know how many actual designers you heard from. I'm sure there's plenty of people out there that think it's a huge crime. But I felt like as a freelancer, I was like, I'm already doing work. Like, this is my whole job. Like, I don't I don't need like a handout from you guys. Yeah, I think once we got past the initial reaction, there were some people who um, uh, the, the, the amount of people who were still upset by what we were doing became smaller and smaller as soon as we people learned more about our attitude to this kind of thing and thought about it. So, so yeah, I think we're safe. If people want, are upset, then that's totally fine. You know, it, 
we're also going to struggle to please everybody because if we took the contest down, we would be pissing, I think, more people off at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to sort of pick a lane and stick with it. Otherwise, it just looks like you don't have any values. And we run into that a lot, like in fulfilling Kickstarters, where we say, like, we're going to do something and then that thing's taking a while. And on the one hand, you can't just, like, ambitiously move forward into failure. But on the other hand, you can't just sort of waffle and say, like, well, what do you guys want? You know, like, it's well, like my big complaint. I love people. <laughs> Alan loves people. No, that's true. I love people. It's uh, Alan... Alan, you're a psychologist, uh, right? Oh, guilty as charged, yes. So what's what's a thing you've learned about human psychology from running Kickstarters? Ooh, uh, I don't think I've learned too much from Kickstarter as much as I've learned in social psychology. It's just, it, it, when you're on Kickstarter, you basically see every cliche vocabulary term from social psychology possible. Like the self-serving bias. Hey, if something goes right, I deserve all the credit. But if something goes wrong, you all deserve the blame. (laughs) But I mean, so if you think my knowledge of psychology is amazing, well, then that's nothing compared to my knowledge of t-shirt materials. (laughs) Oh, God, the try, the try, the try. The try blend. blend. The the holy trinity. Right, hit us. Let's go. What we got? Well, let me tell you the history of the textile industry. Oh, God. It all started... This is the end. ...without any clothing whatsoever. Yes, cavemen had no clothes, were born naked, but eventually they discovered mud and twigs and the occasional leaf. Hopefully it wasn't poison ivy. But then, as ages continued, they discovered sheep. And they found that they could take the wool off of sheep and shape it into some crudely crafted clothing. But this was itchy, uncomfortable even. So then they kept looking for other things to wear, things that could be more comfortable. Enter the cotton plant. And with this material, they were able to make things like t-shirts. Oh yeah. But the adventure continued and eventually we got polyester produced in a magical laboratory in which scientists created a synthetic resin in which the polymer units are linked by ester groups. So Alan, that takes us to the present day, right? I mean, there's nowhere that t-shirt technology can go from here. You're wrong, sir, because that is where we go from the 100% cotton blend, which feels like you're wearing a bit of a tent, to a 50-50 blend where it's 50% cotton, 50% polyester. (laughs) But this is where it gets real good because now they have the epitome of all t-shirts. The heaven upon your back is the tri-blend. They have only 25% cotton and then they have 50% polyester, but that other 25%, it's a material known as- Spiderwebs. Love. (laughs) No, it's, it's, uh, the material's known as rayon. And with rayon, a new tri-blend shirt feels like only those that old favorite t-shirts that you never want to throw away because they're so comfortable, but have oh so many holes in them. We all know the shirts that our partners try to convince us to throw away, but we vow never, only to discover later that your partner secretly threw it away because she's tired of seeing you in it, like, all the fucking time. Honey, yeah. Where's my favorite shirt? 
I don't know. But she does. She does. This might be the worst episode <laughs> we've ever recorded, I but mean, Quinn's is on it, so it's likely that it'll be oh, the most no. listened to podcast oh, we've ever God. recorded you know, as well. You know, I have a t-shirt that uh, is ancient and that my partner makes fun of me of for all the time, and uh, on the front, because I got it from, I don't know, Japan or somewhere, it just says space in huge letters. It's a it's a belter, Ooh, as we say here in the, the UK. What the fuck is a belter? Um, it's something that's real good. Uh, unlike this episode, let's move on to Pokemon. <laughs> go which i see here handily written down on my running order is why i'm here today he's gone is it worth explaining pokemon go to people who maybe don't know what a pokemon is I'm having trouble picturing what that person would be <laughs> okay i mean i guess yeah the, the venn diagram of your audience and people who don't know is a solid single circle yeah exactly okay never mind have you guys tried pokemon go uh, yet have you yeah. I, I have not installed it, motherfuckers, because oh, I played, played Ingress it. back in the day, which uh, is that's old. Yeah, kicking it old school with GPS resistance and enlightenment. Holy shit! Well done, Sean. Uh, you know what was in Ingress that I thought was the best thing it did that is absent from Pokemon Go, and also that didn't work in the UK because our GPS is bad. To capture locations in Ingress, if people are unaware, Ingress is like similar to Pokemon Go. You walk around, you do stuff. In the same world. company designed it. Yep. It, same map data is pulled um, from Ingress, which is why some of the weird, uh, froofy descriptions of places in uh, in Ingress have made it over to Pokemon Go. So you'll go to a local church, and it'll be some incredibly like pithy crowdsourced description of the church being like, <laughs> like really vile about its architectural style in this <laughs> Nintendo game. Um, anyway, yeah. So, but in Ingress, if you wanted to capture a location efficiently, you had to defeat all these nodes, which were positioned perfectly around it in a circle, which for a game about exploring your environment was more interesting than anything Pokemon Go does, because it's not just that you had to walk to your local church. It's that you had to walk like a hundred meters away and then walk in a circle around it because all the, 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 lo- the locations are quite easily accessible, but the nodes in a sort of spider web around it weren't. And that's when you have to do stuff like climb fences or run into the road. And uh, that's what I was into, you know, because that actually made you do something unusual to your environment rather than just like walking down the street and there's a war turtle there or whatever. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, so Pokemon Go, if we look at this side by side, Pokemon Go uh, makes a million dollars a day. It's changing how we use phones and it's, uh, you know, maybe the most valuable, making Pokemon maybe the most valuable brand in the world again. I am sat in my pants and I have a half empty bottle of Heineken next to me and I'm sweating gently. So, like, you know, me and Pokemon Go, you shouldn't, you know, be listening too much to me. I'm just saying, like, but this is what I do. I rage against machines. It's it's gamifying walking to my car, that's for sure. <laughs> oh, my God. But the thing is, it, like, we were talking about this on an episode of uh, Darth Souls Today, which is the video game podcast I'm on with Matt Leeds and assorted guests. And, you know, we were saying, well, it makes you go outside at least. But it doesn't because you have to have your phone open constantly. So you're not mm. really having a nice walk. It's more like it, it's insane inserting this game, which is not an unpleasant one, into activities that you might, you know, otherwise be doing, right? I'm seeing something kind of unique here on my, like, Facebook feed, which is this huge persecution complex sort of developing, where I'm seeing the same meme, like, reposted day after day, which is just like, well, if you think Pokemon Go is stupid or whatever, like, well, you're stupid. Like, just this weird backlash. (laughs) And I've, I've literally not run into anyone who really had a problem with it other than, you know, like, oh, you know, kids are walking into my shops and church. It's cool, you know, whatever. But there's this perceived backlash 
that I feel like a lot of fans have, which maybe is accurate. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to be accurate in the circles I run in. You think people are sort of preemptively ashamed of of collecting <laughs> Pokemons? I think, no, I think that we have a tendency, particularly in like nerd culture, to be overly defensive about our interests at the slightest. Like, you know, like, okay, so in America, like we've got tons of Christians. Christians are not persecuted in America, but yeah. it comes out a lot that people feel persecuted, that you're infringing on our rights or whatever. And I feel like we get a similar kind of thing in nerd culture, where, like, this thing that's really intimate and precious to you as an individual, for your own personal reasons, when somebody's sort of like, oh, I don't really like that. It's like an, it's like an attack on your belief system, you do, know? Do you want to know the psychological term for that? I mean, not really. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do, of course. It's known as the hostile attribution bias. Ooh. The hostile oh, yeah. attribution mm. bias is when an individual misinterprets someone else's behavior as an affront onto themselves. They Like a simple bump in it, where it could be an accident, they assume it's an attack on you. And what's fascinating is most bullies report that they aren't bullies, that they're the ones being bullied it wasn't me it was him attacking me so this wow i was making fun of you but that was interesting oh i <laughs> should i stop i don't i don't think i'm sorry no it's fine you defeated me i am undone uh were you, were you gonna yeah. say something Sean? no not at all i'm just laughing <laughs> well let me bore you even more i read recently on the npr website uh there's a name drop for you mr guardian that Pokemon Go has racial disparity, that black people cannot play it as well as white people. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because of the obvious, you're walking around with your phone, and it's a lot safer for a white person to do it than for someone who isn't. So. Someone will die because of Pokemon Go I mean, before oof. the year's out. Oh. Absolutely. Did you guys read the article of the girl who um, found a dead body? No! Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, water Pokemon in the game are found near bodies of water, right? So she jumped a, she jumped a fence and went to some river and there was a corpse. Ooh. Oh, Pokemon Go. The police department's greatest weapon in finding the victims to of criminals. To comb giant stretches <laughs> yes, of ground exactly. for uh, yes. Zubats, but also Ooh. corpses. Oh, imagine that the police had the power to populate crime scenes with popular Pokemon like Charizard, Dragonite. Oh, shit. Can you imagine? That would be so good. (laughs) Um, The reason I'm describing this is that uh, Kotaku did an excellent follow-up where after the girl found the corpse, um, they called her up and had like a little update to the bottom of the article saying, um, we asked the girl whether she successfully caught the water Pokemon she was looking for after this. And then I pull a quote from her saying something like, no, I was very scared and I just turned around and went home. No. So she, she didn't catch the squirtle. Oh, weak. That's a double whammy, man. He got a... I in. know, Alan. Kids today. But I was uh, I was also talking to um, uh, some friends on uh, on the Dark Souls podcast I just recorded about this, how like the storytelling of Pokemon in general um, has this thing I've never really understood, which is like, if all the kids want to catch them all and be the best, well, it's like, well, no, you can't all have this, guys. You know, the, the standard that right. empowerment fantasy doesn't work as soon as you extrapolate it out into the real world. And now we're seeing what happens if, you know, Pokemon did exist in the real world. And the answer is you'd go to your local gym and there'd be some jerk with a Pokemon a thousand times more powerful than yours um, who you could just couldn't possibly defeat. 
God. So, yeah, is that uh, is that SBJ gone forever then? Is he Pokemon gone? <laughs> I see what you did there. No, SBJ is busy with a whole bunch of things. He's doing a Pokemon Go journal, but he's busy with other work. But speaking of Pokemon, we caught them all. We got Pauls. We got Matt. Now we got you as a guest. Ah, uh, yeah. Competition. This is why I'm very keen to, to uh, maybe Show I haven't been a, a steady hand on the tiller yet. But I'm now placing my hand on the tiller, and I'm ready to steer us into some uh, some table gaming some topics. Real topics. Shall we? Uh, shall we move on to a cool topic? Please do. Excuse me, Sam. Do you have the time? But of course, it be topic. Is there time. a sting for talking about topics on your podcast? I thought there was a, a, a sting, like cops setting up criminals for a bust. What do you mean by sting? A sting? No, like a, 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 a God, a musical thing, like a, a, oh, yeah. a voice. And a, a... you've been you've been talking over it this whole time. Oh, right. Okay, great. This has just been actual chat. (laughs) No worries, man. Uh, You do you. Do your own sting. Go for it. Hello and welcome to Topic Time. Today's topic I see here on my Tuesday night branded flashcard. Are there any addictive board games? I see what you guys did here. This is a follow-on from the Pokemon Go thing. Yeah, so smart. Yeah. Yeah, sharp like that. Yeah, addictive games, if we will. Yeah, so, I mean, I, like most people, if I get this addictive sticky ball rolling, um, I got addicted to buying board games, especially when I pretty much, just before we started Shut Up and Sit Down, I I was part of the the standard person on Board Game Geek or Reddit board games um, who just really got into buying these and buying new games before I'd I'd finished playing the previous ones yeah. and I've never seen a satisfactory like examination of what the hell takes over board gamers in a way that I guess I don't usually see within video games you know you get a video game and you want to play it before you at least buy the next thing and put in your house it's we're real collectors and weirdly the vibe that I've got that's the most similar from anything outside of board games was my friend who collects vinyl records uh-huh. and uh, I was talking to him, or I tweeted saying, holy shit, I guess I blinked and missed it, but right now, because of running Shut Up and Sit Down, I have what most people would call a world-class board game collection. And he saw that tweet and was like, oh my god, I've never felt more collected to you. Because, and he collects vinyl. And it's got to be something to do with the fact that these things are objects. Absolutely. The thinginess of them. Yes. And filling your house with things. Oh, man, I have a dedicated room to nothing but my board game collection because I'm an addict. And it's amazing. I will not get rid of any of the board games. I even have some games that are just awful because I consider it an art gallery. Every single game is a story. There's one game that's so bad, it's broken, can't even play it. And sure enough, my friends have asked, why do you even have this game? It's broken. And I have to say, for all those reasons I just mentioned to you, it's a horrible game. It's broken. Yeah, see, this is why I'm a giant proponent of smaller board game boxes. Like, have you guys seen the box for Samurai Spirit? Googling. Okay, well, this is the thing. Samurai Spirit's one of those great boxes where you look at pictures of it online and it seems like a perfectly ordinary Fantasy Flight standard dimension box. But then you get it in the mail and it is like an eighth the size that you think it is. Is it like the size of Spyfall? Um, yeah, it's slightly small. It's actually sl- even slightly l- less deep than the Spyfall box. Wow. Like, but you open it up, there's no air in the box, there's a beautiful inlay, all the components are even, like, it has oversized cards in it. 
You know, no, they haven't skimped on the size of anything. They've just packed it all down. And like 90% of board games could do that. And I love that because then I just have more space in my room and I can do what Alan's talking about. I can not just collect good board games, which I do now, but collect shitty ones as well, you know? And that's what vinyl record people can do as well. They can just buy records because they think it's funny and that's great. But oh, oh, size, guys, size. I hate size. Size matters and it's awful. I just I just moved uh, a week ago. That's why I wasn't on the podcast last week. And I got rid of a ton of board games, board games that I knew I would never play or whatever. I've you set aside to like- son of a dirty biscuit. I just can't- I love it. <laughs> I love getting rid of shit more than anyone else I know. Like if something can be thrown away, I really get a huge charge out of that. A bunch of them I put aside for Lindsay's niece and nephew to like, just have gifts on deck for them for the next like three years because they're slowly wow. starting board gaming. I'm becoming that weird fetishist, and Alan probably saw a little bit of the, that at Origins, where I got the old Avalon Hill game Gunslinger, I bought Steve Jackson's Car Wars, I oh, took a yeah. bunch of 3M bookshelf games off of Jason Katarski, I just picked up the TSR role-playing game uh, Top Secret, so like I'm getting into the, all these old games, which probably won't play well and will be super annoying to play, at the <laughs> expense of not getting like a new King of Tokyo expansion or getting King of New York or, you know, a lot of these great games that are out, but have this sort of feeling of being ephemeral. Like at Origins of Gen Con, I'm always like, oh, I got to get what everybody's talking about. Like if it's Spyfall, I'm going to go get Spyfall. Or if it's, you know, Mysterium, I got to get Mysterium. And then they just sit there because I don't have a super dedicated board gaming so, so speaking of boxes, Quinns, you on Shut Up and Sit Down have talked pretty much at length about what you think a good and bad box is. Yeah, I have. That Sean and I have actually made business decisions on God. the box, or rather argued about what our future boxes will be. Oh, I shit all over it so bad. <laughs> Well, I think we might be able to coexist, Sean, without uh, killing or shitting on over each other, because the two rooms in a boombox is nice. I like it's nice. great. I like it. Um, I like it a lot. Good font, good feel. Um, I, and I said, I've said it before as well that Kickstarter is the home of the best and worst box designs in the world, because you have people with no design experience, but then people with like actual modern design experience, which is not something the board, the traditional board game industry, like has a great deal of. No. Um, so yeah, the simplest way to put it is my problem with board game boxes is that they're commercials, they're advertisements, you know, they're designed to stand out in game stores, but then you take them home with their big, like, you know, cover, which shows a, a an alien with its head being ripped off by a, a monkey. And then there's a huge cartoony font on the side of the box and you take them home and like, you can put it front on and it looks super garish. You can put it on its side and it still stands out. But like any other item in the world that is a luxury object that people pay like $50 for then take home looks good. Nothing in my house looks as ugly as board games. Nothing. Even, like Xbox games look good on a shelf and that's like the Mountain Dew of like video game um, culture. I have to agree with you there. I mean, an Xbox is like the worst looking uh, jewel sleeve case. Like mm -hmm. the, the, like Sony are on their game. Like Sony have a sort of standardized light blue or black or white. But no, like I have spent an ungodly amount of money on board games and I think it's completely unfair how I get them home. I'm proud of them for a hot second and then my partner comes in and looks at them and she's like, man, I love you and I love these things, but they're so ugly. And then the moment she's done that and she said it, the spell is broken and I'm like, fuck, they are ugly, <laughs> you know? So. But yeah, I'm big into some of this changing somehow. And whenever we get a new game that yeah. looks good, like Nitwit, you guys seen the box for Nitwit? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's actually the game we reference a lot. The beautiful thing about it is the dust sleeve that goes over it. Right, so you can have it like it looks in the shop, and that's great, or you can take the sleeve off, and then it's nice. And I'm sure that's expensive, and they could only get away with it because it's a box that contains some string and some and pencils, right? They're Z-Man, yeah. 
And there's E-Man. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I know it's not going to be acceptable for everyone, but if nothing else, you know, give me small boxes. Give me. Oh my god, this is just a podcast where I ramble about fucking t-shirts. No, and- I'm really into like. <laughs> Like, you've seen those 3M bookshelf games from, like, the 60s, right? Uh, ooh, maybe not. Let me Google them now. There was the... So, 3M, the post-it note company, for a while made board games. Um, and they made them all the exact same size, and they made them to sit standing up with the binding on the outside. Oh, they look like hardcover books. Exactly. And they have a nice little illustration on the front and the back, but on the side, all sitting next to each other, they look like three or four Sherlock Holmes hardcovers or, you know, Bleak House or whatever. Avalon Hill did a couple, Gunslingers like that, and they look amazing next to each other. For some reason, they moved away from that. I don't know if it's like the Milton Bradley era. I think there was a time, too, in board games. I can't back this up at all. But it seems like the board game hobby split into driving down to, like, the childish family game and then the, like, uber nerdy Avalon Hill war game, right? Like, that the Mm -hmm. whole hobby sort of define any of these two genres and i think the family game kind of won out and that set the standard set the tone for what a board game looks like almost irrevocably until now with kickstarter where like everything had to look like sorry or clue and have this more and more and more garish sort of presentation because where you're going to end up you're going to end up in a target you know you're going to end up selling to hasbro or something like that yeah yeah but i mean as soon as you're free from that because as soon as you know you've shipped five thousand copies to five thousand backers like i mean cards against humanity starting the simple box obviously and then have you seen the box of monikers which is even nicer oh yeah of uh, course. oh yeah. that's alex haig he's one of our best friends he's amazing oh nice big 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 fan yeah he's got a kickstarter yeah. going on right now actually for trump cards i was the first backer that's the first time that's ever happened wow but you were talking about the beautiful monikers box oh just the monikers box is an example of a beautiful font it's really nice subdued uh, colors but they could do that because they knew they weren't gonna have to you know compete for people's attention and i always like when i see something like samurai spirit that tries for the really small box i always feel it it isn't just a thing i want to happen it also feels super noble for me because that's like a publisher falling on their sword that's like oh we'll put our little box in the shelves and yeah he won't do as well against the bigger boxes that'll beat him up and steal his components when the lights in the board game shop are off but this is the right thing to do because i know the samurai spirit was an experiment for um fun forge mm-hmm. and so it was just this like little ship they sent sailing off into the sunset never to be seen again or tried again i guess one of the biggest long-standing arguments alan and i've been having now um, let me know if i'm taking us in a bad territory oh, here you're gonna pick this scab are you, you son of a bitch no go for it man i don't care let's talk about it so <laughs> as it stands right now i don't think this is any secret with any of our distributor f- fans two rooms and a boom is too expensive to sell through retail it just costs us too much to make and that's largely because we've got these plastic cards that are super durable yeah. and all this sort of stuff yeah which we um, totally we totally forgot to advertise those on the box so no one knew oh nightmare Ugh. so we're just morons in a lot of different ways but over uh, the last couple of years we've been trying to find a way to make it more retail friendly which has meant talking to a lot of like distributors and fulfillment companies and retailers and you know the big box stores and saying like okay how can we make this game work in your store and so one of the things we've been talking about is box size is about having two products out there the deluxe box and then what alan and i have been calling the hobby box oh no oh no guys you can't no we can't we definitely can't release two separate games i don't think that's going to be the case but even setting that aside we should separate this into just talking about the box because talking about the business model is a whole other thing but 
Alan, do you want to go ahead and defend your sort of idea or propose your idea for what you were thinking? Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking real small box, like the company Oink that makes fake artists goes to New York or that game with the divers that is awesome. Oh, Deep Sea Adventure. Yeah, right. Yeah. Deep Sea Adventure. So the box is really small, but it's perfect to fit all the components necessary. And I would love that to be our small card game lineup box because... The cards fit in it perfectly, but there's also little space for components. Like we have a game Dragon's Head coming out that has tokens. So we could put everything in there and keep it nice and elegant and tight and ergonomic. Nice. The What we've been going back and forth on is that for this to work in retail, not to work like online or whatever, what the retailers want is bigger boxes so that they fit on the shelf so that you can see them and so that they can advertise themselves because like you said, they're commercials. And so we've sort of been going back and forth about this. How can we put a game in stores that like retailers will want to carry and that they'll want to promote but still have a box size that's, you know, like portable? Alan, I think one of your big values is you want our boxes to match as much as possible or as in as few a number of categories as possible. Is that accurate? Uh Yes, that is accurate, Sean. It's it's about making sure that all our games fit nicely together. So when they're on a bookshelf, you can see from afar, oh, that's a Tuesday night game. And it's not as horribly ugly as Sin. So it's tough because I think there is, um, when we're designing this stuff, and Alan's job is usually to stick up for the customer, and I think my job is to stick up for the money, is sort of the positions we've run into a lot of times. Alan, you spend a ton of time reorganizing your board games, putting in uh, baggies, rubber bands. Like, I've seen some of your board games, and all of them, the ones that have a lot of play, and maybe some of the older ones too, have a significant amount of customization done once you get your hands on them. Yeah, it's like my friends say, it's my Zen rock garden to which I masturbate. (laughs) (laughs) And then they drive away so fast. (laughs) So I think like, you know, with Two Rooms and a Boom, one of the big things was you wanted the cards to be organized and to be easy to host out of the box and to have like a certain slant and room for expansions, right? I think I'm actually really proud of our box. Yeah. All of our expansions will fit into our box, which is super convenient. Like Quinn said in his review of Mafia de Cuba. Yeah, Yeah. I did. You did. When not just the expansion can fit in the box, but the expansion's box can fit in the box. Uh, Yeah, Mafia de Cuba we did uh, last year, but we're republishing stuff on our fancy new YouTube channel. Uh, That people can give give a subscribe if they want. Uh, And they should, because... I, I. I didn't get a chance to crush on you, and I don't want to bore you with this story again, but I talked about it to Paul's last episode, but the time my parents listened to your podcast, and they were crying because you guys called me a genius, it was amazing. Oh, yeah! That's one of my favorite stories of doing Shut Up and Sit Down ever, that uh, your parents didn't quite understand what you did uh, with Two Rooms and a Boom, but they heard me talking about it, and that helped them connect the dots, So, which is one of like the, my greatest things ever from running Shut Up and Sit Down. That was really great for me. I'm sure it was good for your parents as well, so I don't know how on earth I managed to make that about me, um, but I did. Anyway, you have uh, d- jerked off Matt and Paul enough, and I will just be boring and talk about topics with you. Good. So I think this can bring us back to addiction, right? Because we're still talking about the thing, the fact that we own this physical object, and we want it to be a certain way 
to go with all the other ones we have, right? Like, we don't really mm-hmm. care so much. Like, I think there's an argument to be made from, like, a product designer standpoint that the products shouldn't be beholden to the other products, that they should work exactly in the box size that works for that one product perfectly for that, and they shouldn't regard anything else. This is what drives me nuts about me as an addictive collector, is that Z-Man Games re-released some of their classic card games, and now they come in a standardized box with new card backs that are gorgeous. And I'm asking myself, do I buy it again just to get the better box art? You're talking about like Parade and Black Spy. Yeah. yeah. And what was the Arboretum. new? The Tichu kind of one? Chimera. Oh, Chimera? Chimera, yep. Yeah, Chimera. Really good stuff. So that's how addicted I am is because not only do I want my game collection, but do I want the most appealing, beautiful version of that game collection I can possibly have? Yeah, and I think this is a funny thing about board games. Wouldn't it be a nicer industry if we were all addicted to just playing games with each other? I mean, we are, but like, it's a lot more about like, owning these objects and i guess it all comes back to a study done by hasbro where the excitement if you give someone a board game starts off low then as soon as you give them the box with the shrink wrap and they take the shrink wrap off or they open the box that excitement hits an incredible peak and then they learn the rules and it flatlines then they play Mm -hmm. the game with some people and then it comes up a bit but it never ever hits that peak of taking the shrink wrap off and Interestingly, if we want to go super scientific, since you all went to college uh, and I have read some articles on the internet, um, (laughs) I am addicted to smoking on and off. But the funny thing is, uh, when I study smoking addiction, you're not actually addicted to um, the nicotine per se. No, it's the classical psychological conditioning. Right. There's the social aspect, like the ritual. I used to smoke. Yeah. Okay, so similarly though, um, the the moment that you're actually chasing, that your brain is looking for, is that moment of opening the pack, is the moment of taking ah. the shrink wrap off. That is when it peaks for you. And actually, I've, I've watched myself, and if it's like, that's the moment I want, and then as soon as I actually start smoking, like, there's nothing there. You know, my body was looking for something it can't get. What it wants is that the endorphins so i basically i'm comparing cigarettes to board games i'm a great fucking voice for a hobby no i think there's something interesting because when we're talking about addictive board games we we totally veered off into the consumer aspect and i think that's because addictions are personal lonely things right like i can be addicted to buying board games because the only other person i have to worry about is me i'm the one buying them Hmm. but when you start talking about playing board games it requires people like a bad group or a bad experience with a game will shut it down immediately. And that doesn't do well as a breeding ground. You know, a great board game community, like I can play the yeah. shittiest game in the world and just have a good time. But a bad gaming group will really kill it. And so I think it doesn't foster that kind of addiction because it's very hard to play over and over again. Like it might be easier, like with some video games, like with oh, Hearthstone or I play Go a lot online. It's easier to be addicted because it's mostly you. You don't really see the other person. Yeah. That is interesting. I'm just still really devastated that I'm a, a, basically a crack addict. <laughs> I just got to get my next fix. And it, I, I mean, I'm actually being somewhat sincere where after hearing this whole Hasbro study, I'm taking a nice hard look at myself and I'm wondering, 
do I stop? Am I just doing this because I'm chasing the next high? I Well, I mean, I think this is actually more common than you'd think among humans, you know, just nesting in general. I mean, the last thing I'll say on it is that, you know, maybe this isn't so bad because, I mean, the friends I have who do theoretically cool things, like, you know, I don't know, like go back to the same guy buying uh, music, you know. Even if for that person, ordering music online, it arriving in the mail and then putting it on your shelf is more exciting than listening to the damn record. <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, and maybe this is something we have to come to terms with about humanity rather than just our tiny weird corner of it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the saving grace is when someone new walks into my home and they see my game collection, it's just awe-inspiring. Oh my goodness, you have so many games. We should play. It's like my spider web for friends. <laughs> yeah. I ran into this with books coming out of high school and getting into like college age, which was that it was so much of the joy and so much of the endorphin rush was in owning the cool book and carrying the cool book around and having the cool book as sort of like a trophy to talk about rather than like just having been well read. Like, would you rather have read a thousand books and own none or would you rather own a thousand books and have read none? I think I see that trickling into like my board game habit, which is why I've been a lot better at just cutting games out that don't hit the table is because it's so close to what I usually do with like books. You know, there's a weird uh, thing we've been doing recently on the site as well to do with like prodding this um, obsession over like keeping board games pristine as well. I had a load of fun recently with a review of Brass, which, you know, because we like to go back and revisit the classics and, you know, look at them Mm -hmm. in a modern day. But a joke in that, a recurring joke is that throughout it, I'm eating like traditional English desserts because it's a game set in England, right? And then every time I eat one, I spill it in like an overwhelming way on the board. Like I just upend an entire (laughs) fucking trifle that just goes splattering across the board. You can have a lot of fun with that of a board game reviewer of like damaging or ripping or spilling stuff because people, it forces people to re-examine because they're going to go, ooh, ooh, I don't like seeing that. And then they have to go, but why? You know, this is something that costs the same as a meal. And, you know, you don't think about, that's again, Rob Davio's line. Like you can eat a pizza and then throw away the box and you don't think about that. But with a board game, you spend the same money on a card game. And then what? You need to obsessively protect it for the rest of your life? Comic books are the same way. It's like, man, this is just not worth my time to be putting these things in sleeves. This cost me $3. I'm not going to cash in on it for a million when I'm 60. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Yeah. I have to look at that a lot with my girlfriend because if she reads a book, uh, it will inevitably go in her handbag and it will return to me looking like it's passed through the digestive tract of some kind of large mammal. Um, she hasn't eaten it. That, that I could have picked a better analogy. The point is the book's destroyed when it comes back to me. I started writing in my role-playing books. Um, like in modules and oh, stuff, nice. and highlighting them and putting notes in. It's like the um, book of the Half Blood Prince. <laughs> exactly. <Harry Potter reference. laughs> well, it just has this <laughs> power of like taking ownership over your game. It's like I'm gonna play this. I'm the one who's gonna use it. I don't care that it has AC 14, you know, one d four written here. That's not useful to me. I'm gonna scratch that out. I'm gonna write in the stats that I'm gonna use at my table because this doesn't need to be a pristine object forever. One of the shitty things is like I'll just buy it later. I just picked up a copy of the Fiend Folio, uh, AD and D first edition. Whoa! And it's got this kid's name like Billy McIntyre <laughs> written all across the inside cover, and he's colored in crayon half the monsters in the book. And it's so much more precious to me because like somebody really got a lot of enjoyment out of this. Oh, that's somebody so colored cool. it. You know, road in it. Somebody really connected with this thing. That's great. That's yeah. so good. It's been already 50 minutes. You're killing me oh, over geez. here. Oh, is that Captain Chessbeard? Okay. He's pissed. What a dick. Chessbeard's a real stickler today. for time. Jesus. Yeah. Which is weird because, like, pirates aren't really known for their punctuality. They just sort of show up when they show up. Did you guys know 
And I'm I've now com- fully committed to the fact that this is going to be a boring podcast with Quentin Swift and Shut Up and Sit Down. Yes, pirate captains did not have a lot of power on a pirate ship. I heard they're very democratic. Don't be talking shit. Yeah, about they uh, everything went to the vote, and the pirate got shit like two shares to everyone else's one share. So like barely anything else. And then if you were ever the only real decision they made was what ships to go after. It was like the pirate captain had very little control except in two circumstances, one of which was in a fight, and the other of which was when you were chasing a ship. Which makes sense, because those are places where you don't have time to, like, vote on something. Yeah, and then everything else, you know, everyone just has a job and they get on with it. But yeah, being a captain was basically like, you know, being like an air traffic controller or something, except instead of planes, it's really angry rapists that you're sort of controlling. I think I learned that from the first episode of Black Sails. I also learned in Moby Dick, sorry. (laughs) No, let's go. But that, like, a town would own a ship. Really? In the way that we would own stock. So, like, you'd have this town, even, like, the widows and orphans would have shares in the ship because, like, the finance of, you know, whaling voyage is so expensive that kind of like how the Green Bay Packers town technically owns the Packers or whatever, this whole town owns the ship and then they all get a return when the ship comes. And that's just sort of the way that these two things mutually supported each other, which I think is pretty interesting. That is interesting. I went to Massachusetts recently um, to visit my uh, my partner's family's uh, parents and we went to the Nantucket Whaling Museum and they had an awesome gamified feature Um they had an exhibit onto this. The the it was a, a tragedy that inspired Moby Dick, where a whale right, smashed right. a ship, and there's a movie coming out. And oh, it, it's already out. It, it stars Thor. Yeah, Thor's in it. Great. Oh, the Thor whale movie. Yeah, the Thor whale movie. So there are 26 survivors in IRL or in the Thor whale movie. But what they do at the start of this exhibit, they give you a punch card, uh, which is just in the wall, and it's got a name of one of the 26 sailors. And as you go through, there's a dotted line on the floor. So it's like you know, day one, and then day two, and day three. Oh, at day three, such and such died. <laughs> of wounds so you got to see whether your character died or whether you make it all the way to the end of the exhibit oh that's so cool yeah it was really neat that's definitely one of my big fears alan and i were watching the witch a couple weeks ago and uh you know it takes place during this pilgrim era oh is that the super cool uh really nice photography um witch movie Yep. Mm-hmm. It's the one, it has the actual well, written accounts of witches. <laughs> Based off of true witches, yeah. Yes, some great bits of that movie. The uh, I'm thinking specifically about the breastfeeding, if you guys remember that shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure, how could I forget? That, yeah. That's a great one. What are some other good breastfeeding movies? People. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, Game of Thrones. Game. Of, wait, oh, that's yeah. not a movie. Yeah, it's a series. But Game of Thrones, man. I liked your, uh, your, your enthusiasm, though. I feel like that's a man with a, a mental repository. If we are over 50 minutes, I'd be really sad if I came on the podcast and we didn't even do the table talks. <laughs> Let's do the table talk segment, if that's okay. Yeah, Quinn's was on Tuesday Night Games and they never talked about fucking board games. It was awful. It's time for a table talk. It says here that this is the table talk section where we're all going to talk about games we've been playing. Sure. I mean, that's what it says. I mean, I'm relieved because these guys get to hear us talk about board games, which is what I tune into your podcast for. So it's insane to me that uh, that I have delayed the onset of board games this much. What have you guys been playing recently? Alan, what have you been playing? You've always got the big list. Oh, yeah. I always have the big list. I've been playing a lot. I've been playing Royals. Uh, is that uh, the new uh, Arcane Wonders game? It is. It is the new Arcane Wonders games. I've also been playing Word Blur. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of super secret project age. <laughs> Good. That's super secret. 
Don't Be a Loser and Minor League Russian Roulette by our friend Ben Canellis. He's trying to make games oh. that are compatible with our other lineup games. He's been doing that a lot. Yeah, yeah. He just uses cards from the games you already have, Two Rooms and Boom, World Championship Russian Roulette, and has been making games. But which of those would you like to hear about the most, sirs? Well, I'm I'm frantically clicking around the internet right now learning about Royals, uh, which, it's, which is my favorite thing which is a re-implementation of another board game, which I always find, like, they are reliably either good or interesting if mm. someone's bringing an idea back from the dead. Oh, back from the dead. What, is this your way of saying you want me to do an elevator pitch for Royals? I would love to know about the second game in the Dice Tower Essentials line. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, to, to be fair, I actually have nothing against Dice Tower Essentials. I think it's a fun idea. And if I had been doing this for as long as Tom Vassell, I would definitely be uh, pulling old games for publishing again. Ooh, is this something that you think you will eventually start doing? Frankly, man, I am hedging my bets. We have no... Hand on heart, we have no plans to do that yet. But hey... Well, come to if us. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. let us be your publishers for the Shut Up, Sit Down Essentials. I tell you what, I mean, I know you've been very kind about my journalistic integrity, but I will dropkick journalistic integrity out of my window if I can get a good edition of Robo Rally published again, somehow. Writing down? <laughs> Robo Rally. Wait, is... Robo Rally, even out of print? I thought it was uh, the... Dude, it's... Uh, Wizards of the Coast, uh, or Avalon Hill, I forget. Uh... Had a really good edition in the 90s that was gorgeous, beautiful, full color, loads of chaos, um, wonderful board elements. Uh, Richard Garfield involved in the design. And then since then, it's just gone... It's had two shit editions recently, which is so ugly and... It has six publishers. Nine ninety nine, Amigo Spiel, Avalon Hill, Hasbro, Play Factory, and Watsy. That's a lot of publishers for one game. Yeah, what, the Watsy one was the golden one. Uh, before that, it was a little dry, and after that, it's been garbage. Um, Do you guys know the history of Richard Garfield and Robo Rally? Uh, maybe not. It's his first game, right? No, the you guys don't know the whole story of Robo Rally and Richard Garfield. No, it's it yeah, it's his first game, and he went to I think Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast. Yeah, yeah, right. And then he. It's his company. I'm. A, um, I was. I thought. I think he pitched Robo Rally to someone else, and oh, then no. he went and made Magic. Right? No, no, that's not it at all. He he went to Wizards of the Coast and pitched Robo Rally, and they said oh. no thanks. But could you make some type of card game for us? Because we're more in the market of that, and then maybe we'll consider Robo Rally. So he went back to his old home and came back with this card game. He's like, "How about this? Enter Magic: The Gathering." Nope, you're right. Yep, Richard Garfield approached Watsi first, and they turned him down because it would have been too expensive. And they're like, "Hey, can you make something portable and kind of quick playing?" I'm just reading a, quick, a Wikipedia article. <laughs> so, if people that haven't played Robo Rally, then they should know that it's a game that allow, like it's a very tense racing game of programming a robot, but where uh, it is perfectly possible for someone to make a mistake, then you get to watch their face. As they extrapolate what that means, it's like, oh, if I turned left instead of right, then I'd go here, and then here, and then... And then you get to watch their face fall as they realize they're driving straight into a bottomless pit. Like, oh, it's man. a... That's it's a oh, I'm sorry to interrupt, Quinns. I just can't hold it in anymore. Traditionally, I get to crush on our guest if it's being sincere, and I, I have to let it out because I love your reviews and Shut Up and Sit Down so much for a few reasons and you're really harping on one of them right now 
And that is you really like to focus on the emotional feel that the game brings you and your friends. And that's the whole point of the game is how do you and your friends feel? Does it make you happy? Does it make you sad? And you're nailing it. And the other thing that you do that I love is you really boil it down to the bare bone mechanics. What are you actually doing on your turns? What are you actually doing in the game? And how does that make you feel? For instance, I remember one specific review where you said, yeah, you can get distracted by the theme, which is important and good, but in reality, you're just playing a card and waiting for your turn. In you were talking about uh, the Heroes game that I like. Oh, Sentinels of the Multiverse. Sentinels, I remember. Yeah, Sentinels of the Multiverse. And so that's a great example where you said, yeah, it has a great theme, and a lot of times you have fun with your friends, but it wears out quick. And why? Because you're playing a card and waiting. But last little bit, and I apologize about gushing all over you again, but it's also the narrative arc you have in your shut up and sit down reviews. Most reviews, I'm always zipping around the videos to find out the information I need, but I can't do that with shut up and sit down because you have this narrative arc. There's a whole story with every review. It's so entertaining. You are crazy kind, and we will continue working on it and trying to figure out how on earth to film board games without making them boring on camera, which is a struggle that's mostly being taken out on our knees because there's a lot of kneeling by table edges. You guys should use your pillow system. Uh, yeah, did you hear about that? <laughs> oh, Matt, Matt's knees are, are, are damaged enough now. Oh, really? No, I was just joking, because earlier you said you have a pillow system for the podcast. Man, I got pillows for the microphone. I got pillows for Matt's knees when he's kneeling by tables, because he's got these oh, knees. Oh, poor guy. It's a thing. His knee, Shut Up and Sit Down's been running for long enough that we could, we used to be able to kneel by tables, you know, with impunity, but now we have to be a little more careful when we're kneeling on his hardwood floors. Holy <laughs> Uh, anyway, I want an elevator pitch for Royals. That's what I want more than anything. All right. Well, all I need now is who I am. So, suggestions, gentlemen? Uh, you are pitching to Tom Vassell, and you want him to accept the game into his Dice Tower Essentials line. Ooh, no problem. But who am I going to be? Oh, who who you are. Sorry. We've switched it up. Yeah, yeah. We've switched it up since you guys have stolen it from us shamelessly. <laughs> Biggest compliment we ever got. But yeah, I need to know who I am. You are a king. Ooh, well. Uh, I like that you kept that simple because if it had been complicated, then it would have been. I, yeah, I would have felt very bad for poor Alan. All right. So I am a king that is pitching to Tom Vassell. I think I got this. Ding me, SBJ. Well, hello, King Tom. Welcome to this royal elevator, suitable only for us, the King of Kings. And as kings, it's important to keep, keep reign over our domain. And let me tell you a little secret to help you rule over all your sheeple flock and the peons. You need to add this game, Royals, to your next game in the regal line of the Dice Tower Essentials. Basically, it's the same damn thing as Ticket to Ride, an immensely popular game. This will fool all those little commoners to give you their coins, but instead of building trains, you're buying off figures in European kingdoms. Sure, they're gonna bribe the princess or the king or maybe a cardinal, so instead of making a rail line from one location to the next, you're trying to bribe people. And that is how you get cash and continue your kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> Were you embarrassed of your accent? Because Quince is here. I, but that was English. I thought that was just American bowl. If I had an accent, it was totally an accident. You started off like with a little bit of an accent, and then immediately went into your. Uh, I didn't even. I didn't even catch that. So I'm gonna. I think Sean is just throwing you under a bus here, Alan. I, think. I might be. I think Sean. Sean is the bus. I am a bus. I. It was an uh, accent. Uh, uh, Alan, did you enjoy Royals then? I'm yeah, because I'm looking at the the box seems nicer than your edition. It it's definitely gorgeous, really easy on the eyes. Arcane uh, Wonders games are almost always very very gorgeous. Yeah, Arcane Wonders. That's actually where Sean and I met. Our relationship started with Arcane Wonders. Oh really? Yeah yeah, Mage Wars is what we worked on. Like me some Mage Wars. But let me tell you about the game. I I did like it actually. I like Ticket to Ride. It's typically a gateway game, but Ticket to Ride has some problems with it because we have a friend, Joshua Giddens, who's like the umpteenth world champion at Ticket to Ride. And he said the secret is you just hold on to all of your color cards at the end of the game and then just buy all the trains you can near the end. But the cool thing is about Royals is it kind of fixes that. There's no reward for you to hold on to your cards until the end. There's so much more incentive to play them right away because you're not building rail lines. You're bribing officials like the Cardinal, the King, the Princess, these other individuals. And the first person to bribe every individual in one country gets some victory points. And the first person who bribes one of each different individual across all the different kingdoms gets some victory points. So in that way, it's much different than Ticket to Ride in that you have to play as soon as you can, but it does have the basic concept of you collect color cards and play them to get something. Alan, I am looking at the board now. I'm gonna sort of emerge from my cubby hole and throw like a ninja kunai of criticism at this game and you're, I'm gonna see if you can block it or not. Wow, bring it. What What it looks like this game is doing is it, it's taking Ticket to Ride with all those beautiful 3D trains that you yeah. place in in a very satisfying tactile way in little tracks. And I'm looking at a board which removes all of that and replaces it with miserable looking European men and women. Oh. Which seems less <laughs> exciting. Well, I mean, they're pretty looking, but yeah, they're definitely, there's no trains in this game whatsoever. <laughs> so, but you're saying the tactile pleasure you get of like seeing these railroads building. That's totally gone. There's no trains. There's nothing. There's just little chit victory points. That you grab and you keep. I mean, I'll I'll give it a shot. Seems uh, it's it seems curious. It's essential, apparently. It's essential, wait, wait, right? No, 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 no. I'm not saying it's essential. The question was, did I enjoy it? And I wouldn't recommend it for everyone. I didn't come in here pretending I'm some aficionado of what everyone should buy. That is sort of the funny thing about our podcast is we never ask you which is the best game you played. It's always just like, well, this one sounds interesting. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, that's what I always want. That's why I can actually be here and like, um, it's like I'm Sadago or something reaching into the, or out of the podcast to change. I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, what else? Oh, I've played something. What did you play? I've played Happy Pigs. Oh, that. Isn't that a yellow game? I-E-L-L-O? Uh, it is, and it's an update of a game by someone else. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I can elevate a pitch it in however you guys choose. Oh, I can make this difficult for you because the easy choice is just giving you a pig. I mean, I was going to say he could be a pig. Oh, <laughs> well, but now we have to decide to whom are you giving the pitch? To so, the farmer. Uh, <laughs> 
All right. Well, that's easy, too. How about this? You are pitching to the industrialized pig market board of trustees. So they're the people that are in charge of just taking in all of these pigs and hacking them up. And you're trying to make reform for the humanity's sake and for environmental sake and just trying to make it better. Okay. Got it. Uh, ding me, <laughs> ethereal SBJ. Hi, so, hi, sorry, uh, could I just, yeah, just have your attention for a bit. Uh, it's me, um, one of the pigs. You're going to chew me up and, and use my flesh for profit. Listen, me and some of the other pigs made this game. It's called Happy Pigs. It's got all these cute pigs, and it's a cute game about about pig farming, and we were really hoping that this might do something to improve the, the PR of the, the general pig industry, because look, look at all these nice happy pigs, and we were thinking that if you play this board game, you can see that pig farming can be a great happy experience to do with breeding pigs and making sure there's room for pigs in the field, because right now we can't really move. We're in cages. We can't really walk. Lots of us can't stand up. It's not really funny and now I've made myself sad and I've kind of lost the thread of this joke. The point is this game is lovely. You can breed pigs, you can buy new pigs, but here's the thing. You, if you do an action that other players take on the same turn and it's simultaneous play, then each of you only get half or a third or a quarter of that action. So you want to do the thing that no one else wants to do? Please don't put me back in the cage. Yeah! Best elevator pitch we've ever had. <laughs> Was it? I mean, I, I oh, absolutely. smoothly Ooh. negotiated the fact that pigs can't really talk. I never even thought about that for a second, so oh, that yeah. just shows you what I know. You totally had me immersed. I was an evil CEO of a pig farm company. Is this another yellow hit? It's Oh, wow. That was... I see what you did there, Sean. Um, <laughs> uh, I, and I have played Night of the... What is it? Night of the Octopus? Yeah. Oh. Truly. Which sounded fine when I read about it on paper, so maybe you guys are smarter than me. But yeah, when I came to play that, it's just like true garbage. But no, I really enjoyed uh, Happy Pigs. It And it came just as I did a power grid review where I was like you know there aren't many economic games that um, sit up to six players and power grid deluxe actually does seat six comfortably grid of power as we call it uh, but happy pigs is a little game of running a little economy um, for up to six you um, you have a limited number of turns spanning one year at the end of each season all your unvaccinated pigs will die you want to take actions each turn that no one else is taking and then each turn a card will come up being like oh it, it's a really good turn for feeding and you're second guessing your friends because you're like well then low Loads of people are going to go for feeding, and I want to go for something different. But then, if everyone goes for something different, then maybe I can get the feeding. Blah blah blah. Is it is is it simple as it sounds? Really, yeah, really simple. You're all basically just playing an economic game, but looking at each other's boards and being like, okay, he has to sell this round, so you can. Um, so, is there a big social aspect to it? Because that's cool. That yeah. Kind of- so the very simple thing is you either buy pigs, sell pigs, feed pigs, or breed pigs. And then the, what you have is an actual grid of tiles in front of you, which is your field. And you've got pigs on it. But if you want to breed pigs, uh, which places lots of new little pigs on your sheet, or uh, uh, feed them, which increases them in size from like a from a 2x2 two two to a 3x2 to a 3x3. It's three. so hard to wrap my head around these abstract concepts. Just Google a picture of happy pigs. That's what I do. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Okay. <laughs> Our knaves right now can't see the pictures you're looking at. This is the magic of radio. I literally just googled happy pigs and now I'm looking at all these incredibly happy real life pigs. You have to look up happy pigs yellow. (laughs) Happy pigs just googling is 
what Alan does all day. Uh, it's true. <laughs> I love pigs. Anyway, the point is, it's a uh, you know, it's a perfectly solid little economic game. I um, I like. It's got a really nice cutesy art style. It's funny. You uh, you can watch your friends fail to vaccinate their pigs and they lose everyone. Um, it's quite po- easy to bounce back if you get really lucky plays in the last few rounds. I really liked it. it. Like it wasn't complicated. It wasn't fantastic, but the art's nice. The game's nice. The rules are simple. I had a great time with Happy Pigs. Uh, Sean, what have you been playing? Uh, I've been playing Go, and then I've been playtesting my uh, cyberpunk RPG Null Hack a little bit. We did character creation uh, with my big group, guys and girls. It was a lot of fun. There is nothing, man, like teaching your own board game is already like hard enough, but walking like seven people through character creation of a role-playing game where it's like, okay, now uh, your special ability is uh, this, and uh, you could also choose uh, this if you want to, which pairs really well up with this class later. Like it was nerve wracking. Sounds like you did a shit job, Sean. Absolutely. But they had a good time and they're my friends, so they were sweet. But, you know, it's this conversation we go back and forth on with playtesting, which is you want to get the game out on the table as soon as possible, but not so soon that you don't have any, like, sort of game there. Just saying, I've got this idea for a game. What do you think could really kill a game in its tracks? Because an idea for a game could be anything. You know, meticulously crafting this, like, experience of creating a character with a book in front of you, where, like, you're assuming that the player has a book in front of them, where in most cases... It's the GM has a book in front of them and six people have just showed up to play for tonight. You know, you can't just always assume everyone's going to take this book home. But it went well. Got a lot of good feedback. Uh, they're excited to try it an adventure. I think we'll try it a little adventure next week. That's good. What? How, yeah. What's the name of the cyberpunk RPG? Have you talked about this one before? Uh, just a little bit, maybe a couple weeks ago. Right now it's called Null Hack, N-U-L-L dot hack. How does it uh, distinguish itself at the risk of making you do like a real elevator pitch? <laughs> no, it's, I've been trying to have this as a guiding light for whether the game is fun or not, is if it pulls off the experience of being Robocop meets Call of Cthulhu. So everyone should be creating these characters that are slowly um, getting more and more cybernetically modified and dying and being resurrected and fighting against rogue AI and all these other things and slowly are getting crazier and crazier easier to where the fear in the game is not so much dying because death is easy in a technologically advanced world but is of going crazy and having your character removed from you as a playable character and turned into some sort of npc monstrous atrocity that the party of your friends that you once were part of is actually gonna have to bring down at some point i like it i think that's cool that's that's uh yeah no it's fun and uh i i just in general have really been enjoying cyberpunk coming back we've got a raft of good cyberpunk video games you know in development and coming out absolutely yeah it's such a weird subgenre that has like a very devoted cult fan base but will never really have the widespread appeal of like fantasy in the sort of Tolkien sense at large you know but it's definitely been cool to see that like you can make a game I think that prior to the Lord of the Rings movies fantasy didn't and you know Harry Potter and and um, uh, what's it called Game of Thrones I, I feel like fantasy was thought of as tremendously nerdy and I feel like cyberpunk could do the same thing if you know for example mm. Matrix 2 and 3 hadn't been garbage Right, yeah. Um, but, you know, Blade Runner was a big deal. The new Blade Runner might be a big deal. Who we'll knows? Out. I think Cyberpunk could come back. The real problem with Cyberpunk is that we are living in a Cyberpunk mm. world right now, and the corporations have kind of won. Are you are you saying Google is OCP from RoboCop? Well, people are very <laughs> placated, aren't they? You know, and that's fine. It's great. We've gotten so good at entertainment. I don't know if there was any Cyberpunk, uh, you know, setting that modeled the fact that, hey, guess what? The world won't be shit. It'll be really nice, and it'll be full of, like delivery food and and affordable taxis because tech will allow that and then you won't riot because you're too busy playing pokemon go 
yes, yeah, cyberpunk sort of has to take up the default position of this is the future as envisioned by people living in the 80s. That's yes. the world we're living in. You can't say like, what about a world with like a worldwide web and devices? And, you know, like, it's like, well, that's where we live right no, now. No, it's nuts to watch uh, Star Trek and some of the tech we have now is like light years no pun intended. Better. Ahead of, yeah, what they have on Star Trek. Uh, speaking of RoboCop, have you guys heard the theory that RoboCop is Jesus? Whoa. Yeah, pretty... St- he's actually Jesus, uh, in that he's like a messianic figure in sort of the hero's journey kind of mythological breakdown, or he is Jesus H. Christ in a robo suit. Uh, the first one, Sean, that he is some type of figure in futuristic dystopia except instead of a carpenter it's a cop in detroit yeah detroit filmed in dallas really dallas in the 80s is detroit in the future oh my god it's like paul uh from shut up it's down to cause move to vancouver recently and he just talks oh, about how yeah. it's just battlestar galactica because all of caprica uh in the first season of bsg was just shot in downtown vancouver there's a great uh, Every Frame a Painting, if you guys watch that YouTube series, yeah. that's about Vancouver, and it's just, here's everything Vancouver's been used for. And then it's everything, ever. It's everything, yeah. As far as cool robots go, the one other thing I've been playing recently is a whole load of Infinity, the tabletop miniatures game. Oh, really? You guys, it's so good. It's so good. It's inc- What makes it better than, like... Warhammer, War Machine, or whatever. I'm so glad you asked, Sean. What makes it better is that, uh, well, War Machine is a better game than Warhammer. If you'd asked what makes it better than Warhammer, I could have given you the pithy answer of, well, it's a, it's a better, it's a, it's a good game. Um, right, sure. But War Machine and other stuff makes that more complicated. What makes it good is that it works really closely to model a couple of things. The first of which is that bullets are unbelievably deadly. You only have like eight people on a side, and uh, you're afraid of moving out of cover because you might get shot. You play with loads of little cool little houses, but mainly it's cool because it tries to model sort of um anime or manga just ridiculous fights so it's a world where you know you can be shot and killed instantly or you know using a mix of smoke and melee weapons you can run all the way up to an enemy and cut them in half with a samurai sword you know it wants to model giant robots but also hacking like uh and it's a skirmish game so it's cheaper right? it's cheaper you can buy like 10 minutes for 80 quid the real expensive stuff is terrain but you can f- find a friend who uh, has terrain and then just uh, ingratiate yourselves with them buy them lunch and then uh you know roofie them or something Ooh. and uh, I might have to buy if it's 10 figures is the buy-in it's so hard for me not to do that and thus we go full circle back into addiction mm. Guy, Alan I'm so addicted to infinity right now it's so good well I tell you what in just a couple of days if people keep their eyes on shut up and sit down we're posting a giant let's play of infinity we've been doing some really good let's plays recently we posted a let's play of Mysterium a couple weeks ago that people should check out on our site or our YouTube channel where we we all dressed up as psychics uh, Matt was a ghost with face paint it was really good and we played with the new hidden science expansion so people should check that out also yeah uh we're gonna we've put a lot of work into the let's play of infinity so people want to know why me board game freak has become obsessed with a miniatures game then uh hey check shut up and sit down just a few this is your miniatures game of choice oh yes same as netrunner was my living card game infinity is my miniatures game of choice and i'm just having such a great time of it are you a painter I have become one for infinity. Like, I have a friend who paints, and the way I paint is I sit opposite him, and then he tells me what to do. Like, you know, the way you'd cook along to a uh, a chef on TV? Like, he just tells me to do stuff, and then I do it meticulously. Um, And fuck up. And it's great. It's okay. I didn't enjoy it first. Hey, you don't fuck up. We have happy accidents. Mm-hmm. That's some Bob Ross painting. I don't know if you guys had Bob Ross. We d- did you see any of the Twitch playthroughs of Bob Ross? Yeah, 
yeah when they were releasing all of them yeah and twitch was watching it and all the memes that came up around um four thousand <laughs> people making fun of bob ross and loving bob ross at once yeah it was it was great <laughs> but no uh, the last thing i'll say on infinity is the reason it's great is your opponent can field a giant robot that costs you know like 60 bucks and it's huge and it's a, a loads of points and it's the kind of thing where it's just an awful thing to see coming towards you in any miniatures game in infinity if it's a big robot you can meticulously sneak a hacker up under you know like crawling and smoke and you can hack into that robot and you can eject the pilot and then you can snipe the pilot. That sounds amazing. It's pretty, it's pretty shit hot, Sean. And this game's been out for a while it's, too. It's been out for like five years. It's, uh, but we only got into it because we had a miniatures game correspondent who, uh, <laughs> who wrote about it last year and I started collecting it since then. And hey, turns out there's a reason it's been around for five years and people are still playing. That is something I love about you guys because it sucks that in board game reviews, you kind of have to chase the hotness. Like you have to, this is what's coming out. Here's 12 different reviews of Mysterium or Spyfall or, you know, whatever. But there's so many good games in the past, and all I want is a list of good games, not necessarily like an update on what is out right now. Yeah. It's fairly easy to know what is out right uh, now. The new stuff does better traffic for us, but frankly, yeah, we get more fun, and uh, like, from going back and reviewing games like Brass or like Concordia that we might have maybe missed at the time, but then you pick it up and you're like, you know, because you could play five new releases that month, and one might be good. Or, mm-hmm. you can go back to that amazing release from four years ago and be like this is awesome this is yeah like the oscars like this is the movie that should have won this year well it's it's my it's 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 lee it's my girlfriend who talks to me a lot about this of like pointing out that the only reason that reviewers if, if you're a reviewer and you only review new stuff you're kind of buying into like what marketing wants you to do you're buying right. into what uh you know like the like essentially capitalism and the industry itself wants you to do because they always want you to review uh new products. to promote the new stuff yeah yeah but probably your audience isn't one if you ask your audience do you want, us, do you want me to review a, a, a great game or the new one they'll probably say a great game so you know it's worth thinking before you uh, before you just always just cover the cult of the new. I think. Uh, yeah, that's the Disney strategy. So the problem with our industry is it's known as a frontline industry, where you get the newest and greatest. And as we've already discussed in this episode, it's all just to get that high from unwrapping the shrink wrap. But the way Disney decided to stay relevant is. They do where they store it. What is it called? Is it called vaulting? I think that's what it's called. Yeah. They put Uh, it into the vault, the Disney vault. Right. So that's how they stay relevant. So we've actually talked about if that's something to do in the game industry. Like you can only get two rooms in a boom on certain years. And then other years you can get world championship Russian roulette. We would never do this, of course, but that is the Disney... Wait, run that past me one more time. So Disney stopped selling their stuff so they can re-release it? Yeah, like you can't buy Bambi right now? Mm, no. Yeah, so you can't buy Bambi. They, It's not available. They'll do wow. limited runs, basically. Right, yeah. So, but at other times, you can buy other things. Like, oh, right now, you can get Sleeping Beauty. Get it while it lasts before we put it back into the vault. It's kind of shitty. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know... There's some incisive critical analysis from Sean there. Absolutely. It's kind of (laughs) shitty. But it puts us in a position... It's weird because when you think back to getting into the hobby, it's usually revolved around one game. Like, we played Warhammer 40k till our fingers bled. Or, like, we had this one copy of... Like, I remember I got into D&D because of the Diablo board game, which was just, you know, Wrath of a Charlotte a D&D board game skinned with Diablo. Um but when you're a kid, you don't have access to all this money, so you play a game and you play that game for a long time. Yeah. Um, but as soon as you get into that 
world where it's like I'm a nerd and I have a job where I make seventy thousand dollars a year or whatever, you can be you now become the collector. And so it is tough because you are always having to chase the sort of new hit thing. Yeah, it's and it goes back to that thing we were talking about. You're chasing the the quickest, most immediate hit, which is taking the cellophane off, which is actually not the healthiest thing for you. We did a review recently of, um, or I did rather, of Concordia, which is a phenomenal uh, game, German game, um, that came out in 2013, I think. Um, and the review starts with me like running away from home and it's a brief skit like it's over quickly don't worry where I run away and you see me cooking at a campsite and I'm like oh hi I've run away from doing Shut Up Sit Down because I don't want to review new stuff I just want to play Concordia forever and you know <laughs> it, it's positioned as a joke but that is actually like on you know on some weeks that's really tr- close to how I feel you know like I'll look at my board game collection and be like shit but you know uh, Robo Rally on Netrunner is really good and I would be happy just playing this this year um, I thought about that like what are the games that I would play for the rest of my life if they were the only games I could play well it's super interesting to me that you play Go which is not something I've prodded but I'm always interested in those games that are like super bottomless like I did a project trying to learn Street Fighter 5 recently um, and learning why <laughs> why people play that and stuff which was amazing so Tuesday Night Games should totally re-release Go under a different name or something so it's relevant and then just I call it like Sean's Game but it's really Go but you don't ever <laughs> call it go. You've got these white and black uh, tokens. <laughs> Before I go, I do want to hear Sean talk just for a bit about Go, because I'm interested. Go is a game that my cousin Ryan uh, taught me uh, maybe six or seven years ago. And um, for those of you who don't know, it's sort of like chess. Um, it's one of those type of two-player competitive games. Um, history is Chinese. Um, it's also known as... Wei Chi in China or Baduk, I think, in Korea. Um, the rules are incredibly simple. You take turns placing white or black tiles, uh, stones, onto this gridded board. I'll be black and you'll be white. And if you ever surround a piece, uh, you capture that piece. And you basically basically play until you've established this territory, and then you count up whoever has the most territory, and that person wins. Um, so it's really simple. One of those like easy-to-learn, lifetime-to-master games. Can you play Go on a board that's just bigger? So people play it on 9x9s, 13x13s, and 19x19s. Um, so they play like smaller games on a 9x9, so it's quicker. So yeah, if that's what you're referring to. Yeah, because I just see those 19x19 Go boards and I look at that and I'm like, that looks like the least fun it is possible to have. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people start off with a 9x9 because it's really quick. Games generally take, uh, like if you're playing live, they could take, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes or so. Big games between high-level players. I'm reading a book right now about uh, this master who was like invincible for a long time and then he lost his last game. And the game itself took six months with both players having, I believe, 40 hours on the clock that they could use for their disposal oh snap this isn't the guy who um it's rumored that oh god it's called like the ghost move or something because it's rumored that the only way his disciple could beat him was from a ghost talking to him because he did a oh, move. oh that's interesting uh yeah god i i i wonder if i can find this if i google it now because now i've started talking it would be i'd be remiss if i didn't finish this um board game go ghost move i've been the worst host um yes wow i found it it's on wikipedia under the title blood vomiting game 
Here we go. The Blood Vomiting game is a famous game of Go of the Edo period between some names. It is noted for three, quote, ghost moves that were allegedly given to Joa during the game by ghosts and for the premature death of Go prodigy Akaboshi Intetsu, who died soon after copping up blood onto Ooh. the board after the game. So he did three moves that he shouldn't have been able to do because they were too smart, then threw up blood and died. You know, that's really interesting because we've seen a similar thing here. Like, one of the world's Go masters was recently just beaten by an AI computer, which had not been done before. We linked an article on this in the Shut Up and Sit Down news, yeah. Oh, nice. And that was a big tragedy for uh, the human race, because that was really all we had over AI. Is <laughs> that like, oh, well, we could beat them at Go still. What about creativity? I mean, do, why do they have to be logic right. puzzles? That Like, we can beat the logical machine at a logic puzzle. No, we can write music. It's fine. But the Go Master, his big thing, as opposed to defeat, was how beautiful it was to have seen these moves that the computer made that literally, like, nobody in history had ever made before. Um, and this guy's at the, you know, he's the best of the best. And seeing like the creativity in the moves was very beautiful to him. I imagine it's very akin to that ghost move thing where you're like, what the fuck? Like, what is that? Oh my God, I would have never seen that coming. I find uh, you know, chess and stuff it tends to be far more boring than you'd expect as someone who studies board games for a living. But um, there sure. is fun stuff like uh, um, the idea that so much of chess is to do with memorization. Um, I don't yeah. know how much you guys know about this, but yeah, there was every world championships. There are people who just try and go off grid as quickly as possible like they'll play suboptimally incredibly weirdly to begin with which puts them in a bad board state compared to their opponent but it means that their opponent can no longer look at the board and be like oh well this is such and such a play from this game I do this and then yeah. their, their opponent is better at being uh, creative so yeah I do love that stuff so chess and go are actually known hurdles to players into the tabletop industry because there is this long-standing belief that if you are better at chess or if you're better at go which are pure strategy games no luck involved whatsoever that if you lose you're simply dumber than your opponent but research shows there is no correlation to your skill ability in chess and intelligence they don't mean one or the same yeah i mean sounds like alan is not very good at chess <laughs> sounds like alan sucks Oof. yeah you don't know the half of it i lost constantly when i played chess back when i was in prison but that's yeah there's something romantic about day. old games like that guys playing in the park my friends of mine relatives have been in prison and just really gotten incredibly good at chess uh from time spent in the clink and there's something very cool about that even when i was in china last year i was walking on the streets and there were these rickshaw like cart drivers um who were like basking in the shade waiting for rides to give people and they were playing a game that looked from my weird perspective like go or shogi or chess or something but they were just playing with torn up leaves on the cement and they were so enraptured in it and all i wanted to do is go over there and be like what is this game like what is this game that's like so good that this is what you're doing you know it's so easy to learn or so universal that this is just what you're playing on the sidewalk and then it turns out they're just tripping balls and right uh, yeah they're just making crude you know pornographic pictures out of mud and dirt on the ground no yeah, that absolutely. is that is absolutely the best thing in the world and uh, i would definitely like to see um in western society that same like i mean we've just seemed to move past it because, you know, in the 60s, it's you would have bones. people playing chess and stuff. Yeah, I guess, you know, but like pick up card games and chess games and stuff was so much more of a thing in the in the 70s and 80s. It's awful. We have pubs in England now that have really gone like because they're chasing a sort of um, a bygone era. They'll fill their pub with board games here in London, um, but not like good ones. Like, you know, here's uh, Connect Four. And on that note, <laughs> on yeah. that incredibly underwhelming anecdote. We draw to a close. Guys, thanks so much for, for having me and making my Thursday night a lot more interesting. 
Where can uh, they reach you, Quins? People, uh, if they want to hear more stories that don't go anywhere and more blood vomiting games, they can go to www.shutupandsitdown.com where myself and my very hardworking colleagues do videos and written reviews and stuff about uh, board games. And we try and arguably have some success to be the best board gaming site in the world. You're uh, mileage may vary some people really like what we do so why not give us a shot do it sean where can they find you you can find me on twitter at at sean mccoy what about you alan where can they find you oh well if they want to get a hold of the podcast you can do it on twitter we're at play tkg or if you have any questions comments concerns please email us at podcast at tuesdaynightgames.com spelled with a k and for me, you can find me on the tweets or on Facebook at Alan Gerding, A-L-A-N-G-E-R, ding! Nice. Uh, good work, everyone. Uh, I will maybe be back on a later podcast or a Gen Con podcast. Boom! <laughs> All right, that's enough. Get out of my way, Alan. Hey, this podcast is... Uh, he wants you to say over, Finished? Over? Is it over? Boom! <laughs> <laughs>